I don't lean on my own understanding. My hope is in the maker of heaven. Those are good words for how do we navigate suffering. The whole last half of Romans chapter 8, which we have been in and are going to be in for another couple of times here, has to do with what is our hope in suffering. And so if you haven't suffered, then you can just check out. If you think about it, there's you've had some suffering in your life that's been hard. So this is a good, good message for you. And uh, so what we saw last week in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, was Paul said the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he talks about how all of creation is groaning, longing for the, the completion of our redemption, are made glorious, are made perfect, are made immortal in the resurrection. And so all of creation is waiting for us to get that show on the road. And that's waiting for Jesus to come back and, and raise us from the dead and grant us immortal bodies. So all of creation is waiting for that. And, and that's our, also our patience, what we're patiently waiting for. So um, today we're going to see further how God is working all things together for good and how that helps. We don't understand all, all that we're going through, but it helps make sense of our suffering. So would you stand as we read from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through verse 30, verses 26 through verse 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, these are powerful mysteries about how you work and how you ensure that we safely stay connected to Jesus through suffering. And you bring us fully into the fullness of our redemption Grant your spirit, the very one who prays for us when we don't know what to pray, so that we can understand your word and feel deeply how much we depend upon Jesus and how much we long for, for the fulfillment of what he has accomplished for us. So help me to make it clear in the way I teach your word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive all that you have for us today for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So verse 26 of Romans 8, Paul says, likewise, likewise, as, as our hope of full redemption sustains us in our suffering, so the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? Basically, the word just refers to our human frailty, our human fallibility, our um, limitations, our incapacities due to our finiteness. But Paul is specifically talking about our weakness in prayer. 
The word helps means to help by joining in an activity. So as we struggle to pray as we ought, the Spirit joins in and helps us as we pray. If there's anything that we need to do when we're in suffering, it's pray. I uh, saw this week in the newspaper that a um, a 46-year-old man from Stevenson crashed his motorcycle on a DNR road in the gorge. He rolled down an embankment. His leg was broken in multiple places. After hours of lying there in pain and unable to move, he began to pray. He asked God to have mercy on him, whatever that means. And within 10 minutes, a pair of passers-by called down to him that they were getting help. So he got help. So when you're suffering, pray. If you need a verse, then um, James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So if you get nothing else out of this today, if you're suffering, pray. The only way you're going to have sustained hope in suffering is to pray. But but you say, but prayer is hard, and I'm weak in prayer. Ah, that's why we need the Spirit. That's what Paul says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Um, we don't know what to pray for a lot of the times. We often don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He helps us in our weakness of not knowing what to pray for by praying for us. We must need a lot of help in prayer because in verse 35 of of this same chapter, uh, Paul says that Christ Jesus intercedes for us. So that we have the Spirit interceding for us, we have Christ interceding for us. We must need lots of help. We don't hear the Spirit interceding for us, no matter how, how hard you listen. We're not told to get some special revelation as to how the Spirit is praying for us. In fact, it says he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words or wordless wordless groanings, literally. Paul doesn't tell us how to, how to know what that is, but we pray the best we know how and trust the Spirit's perfect praying. And in verse 27, we see that he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. God searches our hearts. He is fully aware of what we are trying to pray. God the Father knows perfectly what the mind of the Spirit is, for he intercedes for us according to the will of God. So this is our weakness in praying. We often don't know what God's specific will is in situations in which we are praying. And we don't perfectly understand all the circumstances and influences and all that God is doing. So there's so much we don't know, and we don't know how to pray specifically according to God's will. So what God has promised and commanded is his will, and so we can pray accordingly. So, for example, if we just look at what he says in, in Romans 8, Romans 8.13, I can pray, Father, help me to kill this sin by your Spirit, because we know that that's what God gives us the Spirit to do, and, and that's his will. Or uh, in light of verse 17, Father, help me to keep trusting in Jesus as I suffer. Or in verses 23 to 25, Lord, help me to keep patiently enduring in in hope of my redemption and glory. We know these things are his will. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, this is how you're to pray. Pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your name be made holy throughout the earth. Supply our daily needs. Keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. 
We know those are God's will, but we don't understand all the circumstances. We don't know specifically how God's going to work all those things out. So we need lots of help. I have no promise that God will heal me from Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease. I have a promise that in eternity he's going to do that, for sure. He's going to give me a new body, and it's going to be free of all disease and all sickness, as for all of you here who have trusted Christ as well. I know that God can and sometimes does heal, uh, whether through natural means or miraculous means. He, he sometimes does do that in this life. But I don't know what his specific will is, since I don't know all the ways he wants to work in and through me with this sickness. And, and I don't know how healing in this life does or doesn't fit into uh, his wise and good purposes. So I can pray, Lord, help me not to waste my suffering by not trusting in you, by not enduring in faith and hope in you. For your glory and for my good. But I don't know how to pray perfectly according to, the, to God's will. Here's another example. If you desire that a loved one come to faith in Christ and that loved one gets into some kind of trouble, maybe it's a losing a job or a sickness, or they get arrested for something, uh, do you pray that they escape the trouble that they're in, or that the Lord would do whatever it takes in the trouble they're in to bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus? The Spirit fortifies and fixes our prayers as they go to God, so that they are according to God's will. You ever notice how mothers can understand what their one-year-olds are saying? They, they, they can easily interpret what their, what their little kids are saying when, when none of the rest of us can. And that's how it works with, with the Spirit interpreting our prayers. Sometimes our struggle is we do know God's will, and we just struggle in accepting it. So even Jesus, in his humanness, as he was facing going to the cross and bearing the sins of the world, he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So even Jesus knew his Father's will, and he struggled with the weight of it. So in our sufferings due to our own remaining sin, due to living in a fallen world with its dangers, its decay, its disasters and diseases, due to our weakness in praying, we can pray in hope, knowing that the Spirit aligns our de defective prayers with God's will. And according to Romans verse 28 of chapter 8, we know we can absolutely trust that God is accomplishing His will for our good. So Romans 8.28 famous verse for many of us. Paul says, we know all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Some trans translations include the word God in there. God causes all things to work together for good. Or in all things, God works for the good. Regardless of the translation, it's clear from the context that Paul isn't saying that all things just work themselves out for good, but God works all things together for good. It is all things, it's all things that God works together for good. Including the really horrible things that work together for good for God's people. Think of something in your life that you think can't possibly have any good purpose. Whether it's a broken relationship, family strife, financial ruin, 
sickness. You have the promise that God is working and will work that out for good, no matter what it is. How do we know that all things work together for good? How do we know this? Because Paul says we know this. How do we know? Well, that's what God does all the time. He has a reputation for constantly working things together for good. This is what how he spends his days, working all things together for good. Joseph was abandoned for dead, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of rape, and sentenced to serve his days in prison. But when circumstances changed and Joseph was the second most powerful man in Egypt, he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, you know that God providentially worked bad circumstances for good in her life, resulting in her becoming the great-grandmother of King David. King David, his whole life was a story of God working bad things for good in his life. Um, the story of Esther was the same way. The story of Job. Jesus was the ultimate example of God working even horrible things for good. He's rejected by his people. He's betrayed by a disciple. He's conspired against by religious leaders. He's delivered to the, the Romans. Mock trials were held. He was crucified. He bore the sins of the world. Bad things. And by this, he became the savior of all who would believe in him for forgiveness and eternal life. So God just is very much about working horrible things and all things together for good. But all things don't work together for good for everybody. Paul states two qualifying conditions. One is it is for those who love God that all things work for good. This isn't referring to a special class of Christians who happen to love God really well or you had a, a very good day of loving God, so God's working it together for good, but another day you don't love him so well, so God doesn't work it for good. No, it's, it's simply another term for, for being a believer in Christ. Um, it's simply a label for Christians. If you are in Christ and Christ is in your life, you love his Father. Not perfectly, but you love him. And so, uh, for you, the love of the Father is in you. And, and the reason you came to love God wasn't because you were a natural-born God-lover, but because of the second thing that Paul says, because you are called according to his purpose. The word called doesn't refer to just an outward call that a, a person may give. The word called in the New Testament almost always refers to God's inward summons to come to Christ that overcomes human resistance and persuades them to say yes to receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord. So, for example, in 2 Timothy 1.9, we read that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So God called us according to his own purpose and grace. By his grace, he called us, and he, he overcame our resistance to his call and drew us to, to, to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he purposed to do that before the ages began. Those for whom all things work together for good are those who are called according to God's purpose. God calls people according to his purpose. And his purpose cannot be frustrated. 
God's purpose is unstoppable. He is orchestrating every good thing and every bad thing in your life for good. But what is the good for which God is working all things together? And how is it so certain that He will? What is the purpose for which He has called us? Well, we see that in verse 29. Where He says, For, I'm giving you a reason for how God is working all things together for good. For those whom God foreknew. What does it mean for God to foreknow someone? By itself, the word can simply mean to know something in advance. So it's used that way at least in one place, in Acts chapter 26, verse 5, where Paul says, they have known for a long time about me. So they, they knew about me in advance. So some people think that this verse in Romans 8.29 means, those whom God foresaw would choose him. And he certainly did. But Paul doesn't say those whose choice God foreknew. He says those whom God foreknew. He knew them as people. He knew about them. He knew them as people. He knew them. The word has its roots in the Old Testament, which speaks of God knowing his people, Israel. So in Amos 3.2, God said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. I have only known you of all the families of the earth. God isn't saying there that he only knew about Israel and he didn't know about the other nations. He's saying he only knew them in terms of having a covenant love relationship with them. He had chosen to set his love upon them by his grace. So it's speaking about those with whom God has a covenant love relationship with. So the word foreknow carries that meaning here. So those whom he foreknew means those on whom God chose beforehand to set his love. He pre-planned to have a love relationship with them. It's like in the passage that Greg read from Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, he chose us. Those whom God chose in advance for a love relationship. The closest human example is when your baby is in the womb before he or she is born, you love him. You just have that natural love for your unborn child. Those whom God foreknew, it says he also predestined. So he, he had, he chose to set his love upon them in advance, and he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Those upon whom God chose to set his love, he predestined, he foreordained that they should be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. God had a plan for, he had a design for your life. He does have a wonderful plan for your life, and it's for you to be like Jesus. This is the good Paul had in mind in in verse 28, the good for which God is working all things together. It is the good we are waiting for when Jesus returns. It is the best good, the goodest good, an eternal good that all things in this life are preparing us for. And it says he did that so that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. The firstborn son in a Jewish family had the highest privilege in the family. So when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers, he has in mind that Jesus is both the preeminent, supreme son among those whom God calls into his family, and that he is united with the people God calls into his family, and that there are many 
that he calls into his family. So that's a good thing. He's, he's got a big family. He's growing it all the time. Also in Colossians 1.18, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. So he's the first resurrected from the dead. And so God's purpose in predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son is ultimately realized when we are resurrected with a body like his, like Jesus Christ. But you say, but isn't it still possible that our struggles with sin, our frustrations with, li- with living in a fallen world, our, our sufferings with diseases and sicknesses and pains, uh, hardships of following Christ, might, might not overwhelm us by anger with God or despair that he isn't worth trusting or that Christ isn't worth following or we're derailed because of we come under the power of sin again. Can't that still happen? Might our faith be depleted or destroyed so that God's purpose won't be realized? If being conformed to Christ ultimately depends upon us, then we would have a 100% failure rate. None of us would make it if it's up to us. But God has said, as early as the Old Testament, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. I declare in advance what's going to be done. And he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So what God has planned to accomplish for us and in us, he's going to be able to successfully do. And remember, we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit always gets his prayers answered. He never fails to to have his prayers answered. So we've got all this going for us. And verse 30 tells us that God has designed an unbroken, unbreakable chain of redemption from predestination to glory. Verse 30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. So everyone, every person God predestined, he also called to himself. So there are none whom God predestined that he did not successfully draw to receive Jesus. And those whom he called, he also justified. So God justifies everyone he calls to his son. So from predestination to calling to justification, there's no fallout. He will certainly, to everyone he called, he will give a right status with him. You say, well, wait just a cotton picking minute. Or maybe you don't say cotton picking. Say, wait just a minute. Paul makes it sound like salvation is all of God. Where is our part in this chain? And then you get those notorious Bible study questions like, how do I know if I'm predestined? Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in him? You're predestined. Is there anything stopping you from believing in Jesus except your own unbelief? There's nothing in, your, in the way from, from, from your end as a person except sin. So, But Paul spent the first five chapters making it very clear that the only way to be made right with God, to have your sins forgiven and have life in Jesus, to be counted right in the sight, is you must believe in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection for you. So he's made it really, really clear that you, you must believe. And that's not something that people do for you. That's not something God does for you. He, he overcomes your resistance. He frees you up to do it, but you you still got to believe. So that's very clear in the Scripture. Um, the biblical writers don't try to reconcile our responsibility with God's sovereignty. By the way, sovereignty, what is that? It means God has ultimate authority. 
He rules over all things. He's the, the only completely free person in the universe. He's the only person who can do anything he pleases. So um, God's... The, the Bible just says both of these are true. The Bible says God is sovereign and you're responsible for your life. And it doesn't try to reconcile, doesn't try to explain how those... That's for Bible studies to spend hours trying to debate, trying to answer questions the Bible doesn't answer. We have lots of fun doing that, don't we? This is given to us for our comfort. There, There is one ultimate, and that's God. And it says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So everyone whom God made right with himself and his son Jesus, every one of these he also glorified, which is interesting. If you're paying attention to grammar, I know that you're all into that, but past tense, glorified. Like, has that happened yet? It hasn't happened yet. So certain is God working out our redemption that Paul speaks of the fulfillment of our redemption, our being glorified in immortal, incorruptible resurrection bodies in the likeness of Jesus, as if it is already accomplished. It's as good as done. So God's got this. And what is astounding is that in between our justification and glorification is our sanctification, that is, our being made more like Jesus, our growth in faith, in obedience to him, with all of our suffering, our sin killing, our spirit empowered praying and hard and living, our persevering in faith, all of that, that's where we live right now. He just leaps over that because he's already talked about that, but he says, don't worry about that being the place where you fall out. God's going to get you safely from predestination to calling to justification. That's where we come in, being justified by faith. And he's going to see you all the way to glorification without any failure. No fallout. It's a 100% graduation rate. It's better than Camus High School. So Romans 8, 28-30 gives us the foundation to live all out for Jesus. You can just totally trust Him for everything in your life. And you can just live fully and wholly for Him. And He makes good on it. As I thought about this passage, I was reminded of um, Dr. Helen Rosevere. I heard her speak at a conference, and she really impacted me. She's a former missionary to Congo from 1953 to 1973. When I heard her speak at the conference, she was 80 years old. She just had that weightiness of someone who, who was battle-tested in her relationship with the Lord. She's very gracious, and she just had a lot of, of, of Jesus in her for sure. She almost failed missionary school, although they were eager to send out a doctor back then in the 50s to to the Congo. Her personal failings almost sank her. She admitted her stubbornness, pride, know-it-all attitude, inability to work with others made her a liability. She said to God when she had come to Christ and she was ready to go out and serve, she said, I'll go anywhere God wants me to, whatever the cost. And later she remembered afterwards, I went up to the mountains and I had it out with God. I said, okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead and make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. When she first arrived, she was the only doctor for two and a half million people in Congo. She eventually established a 250-bed hospital. 
During her time in Africa, she became very lonely and she hungered for marriage. She wanted the companionship of a man with whom to share the burden of ministry. God never gave her a husband, and she had to learn to be content in Jesus. She tells of a horrendous story of being in the hands of Congolese rebels when she became a virtual prisoner for five months. She said, they found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over the head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, mouthful of blood, my glasses gone. Beyond sense, numb with horror and fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. Later, speaking of that night of horror, she shared an incredible response. Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. He understood not only my desperate misery, but also mixed up horror of emotional trauma. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege She uses that word a lot in her testimonies about her life and her suffering, the privilege of serving Christ, of sharing in some little way in in the fellowship of his suffering. She recalls what one of her early missionary uh, mentors said, the Lord has only one purpose ultimately for each one of us, to make us more like Jesus. He's interested in your relationship with him. Let him take you and mold you as he will. All the rest will take its rightful place. In one interview, she was asked what one thing she would say from her experience, what would she say to the people about what motivates living for Christ? She she just asked these questions. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Is he your all in all? Do you do what you do because you love him? For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Dr. Rosevere hasn't yet seen all the good for which God is working the sufferings and service of her life together, but her life and and her heart bear the fruit of one whom God has begun to conform to Christ in this life. Already we are being conformed to be like Jesus, but we have not yet been fully transformed. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, in praying after, as we suffer, perfecting our prayers according to God's will. And God is working everything in your life for good in his unstoppable purpose to make you like his son. Through his unbreakable plan of redemption for you. Let's pray. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We thank you that even though we're unable to pray as we ought, we're so weak, that you grant us your Spirit who intercedes for us according to your will, sustains us in our suffering, 
Thank you, Father, for this unbelievable promise that makes absolutely no sense except for your eternal, powerful, merciful, grace-filled, Christ-sacrificing, Christ-resurrecting, Spirit-empowered plan to rescue us, Father, from our lostness and our, our own fallenness and living in a fallen world, and to ensure, because you set your love upon us in advance, because you had a pre-design to conform us to Christ, because you called us to yourself, overcoming our resistance to you, counting us righteous because of the righteousness of your Son and placing our sins upon him, and giving us life in him so that we could live for you, guaranteeing, Father, that one day we'll be sin-free and, and there will be no more suffering. Father, I, I pray for each of us here, whatever you have us suffering and encountering, Father, hardships in our life, that we would take strong hope in this passage. And it wouldn't be just a, a buzz phrase to us. It wouldn't be just a cliche. We would really live in the light of this truth and live our lives wholly for you, trusting in you regardless of what suffering we're enduring. Father, I pray for comfort and peace for those who are suffering in particularly, particularly harsh ways right now, who are lonely, discouraged, painful, hurting, abandoned. May, may they see and know that you are for them and you are working them. And I pray, Father, for any who have not yet met Jesus and put their trust in him, they would see him as glorious and good they would know that he paid a, the ultimate price for their sins, for their forgiveness, and so they can have life in him as they will trust in him and be guaranteed to be freed from suffering one day and to be living forever with you in, in worship of your great name and with your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.